0: Hello, this is John San Juan of the Hush Trops, and you are listening to the Famous Cat Chronicle.
1: Hi, welcome back to the Famous Cat Chronicle. I know you haven't heard from me in a long time. And on some podcasts, they talk about there's a season one, season two. So maybe, just maybe, let's let's call this the first episode in season two of the famous Cat Chronicle podcast. Uh, Whatever. Life gets in the way, and I don't always have something important to say. But now, this time, I do. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm proud to say that John San Juan of the Chicago band Hush Drops is back here to talk all about what's been going down since the unfortunate passing of Joe Camarillo, the band's drummer. We talk about not only what happened before Joe passed, what happened afterwards, the the wonderful tribute concert that was held at the hideout in September to pay tribute to Joe Camarillo. It's all here, folks. And because this is an extra-long conversation, there will be a part two where John San Juan goes deep into the nitty-gritty details of the band's brand new album, The Static. So right now, kick back, get yourself a drink, and enjoy John San Juan talking all about the Hush Drops. I've seen local journalists, when they've utilized Joe Camarillo, the drummer of Hush Drops, refer to the Hushdrops as a supergroup, as if the Hush Drops were similar to Traveling Wilburys and Blind Faith being a band assembled of pre-existing superstars for a lark. I know the truth that it was kind of the other way around, that the Hush Drops was original band for both of you and that the source of the esteemed reputations that you and Joe eventually have been able to build come from Hush Drops. And so aside from the flattery inherent in compliments like that, how does it feel to see history kind of rewritten like that?
0: Oh, I think it's it's like first thing you learn is that you always got to wait. I think one of the first things you learn is... Having some musical life that's whatever discussed or written about to any extent is that for the most part, people are going to get it wrong or get it a little sideways through no ill intent. So, things like that, the idea that, you know, some piece of it is, you know, sort of shown in reverse or described in reverse, mm-hmm. it's not troubling. You realize too that. Throughout the whole time we've been doing this, or certainly in recent years, that there's always a hook, and I think people are always looking for a hook. And Mm -hmm. personally, being as invested in Hush Drops as I've been, and being the having the great love for our work that I have, like, I think, well, it's irrelevant that I played with this person, or Joe played with that person, or Jim played with these people. But you have to expect that it's a real easy hook journalistically speaking, mm-hmm. um, and and you just you make your pace, p- piece with it really easily. It's like, well, if that is what enables someone to write about the band, it's like the whole thing about, yeah, they put this you know, we were in the paper, and they said that I did this and that, and you know some defamatory thing, and so I was like, well, did they spell your name right? <laughs> so that I guess that's that's where I stand with that, <laughs> right? Not everybody comes to the band through the band. I mean, as much as I think this is my favorite version of Joe Camarillo by far, musically speaking, or of Jim, it's absolutely reasonable to expect, and I know for a fact that if not for the Waco Brothers or Veruca Salt or other things that I've done that people might not have found this band, you know? Oh, yeah. So, it's fair. It's fair that they would see it as, oh, yeah, well, so, yeah, the guy from, you know, the Web Brothers. He also has this other little thing that he does, you know. However, okay. that may be the reverse of how I see it. It's fine.
2: Where did the time go? Where did time go? Where will your mind-
1: album the static that song is elevator what would you say were the things that joe consistently was able to do to take a good song and make it great how would you describe that genius from your side of being in a band with him i'm sure everybody brings material to the band what was his particular genius how would you crystallize it
0: that's a good question, and it's one that I'm, I've am i been waiting for someone to ask. I'm happy to answer it. Joe had... It's crazy because, you know, and I've just become more and more aware of this over the years, and especially in the past year in his absence, that what I brought in versus what it was once it had gone through the Joe machine... I mean, it was like a real head-to-toe, top-to-bottom custom job of genius and an insight. And, you know, so obviously, most prominently, you'd say, well, his, what he did as a drummer was never just like, yeah, well, I'm keeping a beat to it. It was never this kind of very square way of making professional rock music. It was really, he just was able to hear what it could be and all of the little areas of how it could be expressive and how every element of it could be more meaningful you know you'd play in such a way that you know suddenly you as a vocalist you could phrase the lead vocal in a more meaningful way because of how he was playing with the tempo and I mean, this is another thing. His whole view of tempo wasn't this fixed thing, like, well, put the click on and boy, I'll be good and steady and reliable. I mean, he really deliberately had all these things where he, you know, he could, he would rush in certain places that no other drummer would think of where it was absolutely crucial and necessary. And similarly, he could really, really bring it down. And I'm thinking of something like a song like Macho, which. We played it live probably over the years as much as any other song, and that was one where he could really find all of these pockets to really bring it to a very slow place, almost comically, like, well, wait a minute, how could you even, you know, and he would just find oh, you know what, I can slow down during this fill and it'll sound like the most satisfying and musical thing in the world. And... No other drummer would have ever thought to do this. I mean that's me editorializing, but I also think that he was aware of what how special his playing was. So there was all of this, you know, and all these songs of mine, or I listen to the demo and then hear the final recording of it or some live version of it. It's like he just he took it so far from its point of origin. And always to its betterment, you know, I don't know, things like this town, similarly, like being able to really give it this liquid fluid quality where it was, again, just not like a fixed, um, you know, but really almost like watching waves on an ocean or something like that. So. Yeah and I and I have I've have not even moved past his drumming at this point but this was a consistent thing all of these songs you know there's songs on the static that are like this the and again he could see a thing in it that you would have never seen and would immediately act on it and you were always you know it was never like oh no joe no, no that's not what i want you to do you're you're playing it wrong i need you like you were always just happy to you know once he did it you were you were thrilled 100% of the time. So there was that, which is no small thing. I mean, I think that was our sound, you know, that sort of that swing, as it were. I remember talking to a guy around the turn of the century who was in a kind of, I mean, honestly, like a pretty like sub-Weezer kind of commercial <laughs> alternative band. You know, let's just <laughs> call these things what they are. I mean, it was sort of a, yeah, really, just a very, not a great deal of natural ability, but you know some willingness to observe and act on perceived trends um and i remember telling him you know oh you know so i think i feel like the hush drops i think we, i really think we need to go over to england and do some dates over there and you know explore that avenue of potential discovery and mm-hmm. I remember him saying he's like yeah, wow, I don't know, you know, I don't know if they're ready for that kind of swing. Like, I don't know if just, you know, the way, you know, the sort of the way that band, the way your band swings, I just don't know if that's something that, you know, I don't know if that'll even translate. You know, but it's said in a very, I mean, obviously, a compliment of the highest order, really, and just said in this very sort of thoughtful way, like, you may be attempting to sell something that, by dint of its unrecognizability, maybe a hard sell, whatever it was. But it sort of, that was just, you know, and this is over 20 years ago now, and it sort of forced me to consider like, oh God, I guess there is kind of a thing with this band where, you know, the songs don't just start middle and end, but kind of uh, rise and fall and again. And then then this is Joe. You know, this is, uh, you know, it wasn't my doing. It was, I very quickly, you know, signed up for it and joined the program, and I mean, there's just all of this, all of my memories of that 30 years of being in a band together would be playing some song on stage, whatever it was, you know, just some part of our repertoire that maybe we'd played a million times, and he would do some very unexpected thing, and It was always me just like the second that I was off mic just turning around and going like, yeah, uh, (laughs) because I also needed to really I knew that it was something that I needed to I needed to always reinforce that and give it encourage it, I guess, Um, because like, well, this is our best part. My job is to emphasize it and encourage it and give him a sense of that this is his job now you know that he's made mm. for himself like a, we didn't even have that job we didn't even have that opening and you know, <laughs> he showed up and handed in the application that said oh yeah also i'm going to you know really give this elasticity and this musical this playfulness and this humor and yeah, i'm going to give your music all of these things that you're not explicitly asking for mm. so as a drummer that's what he did and the parts he came up with you know, something like Summer People, just a really obvious example of, okay, well, now that Joe has heard me sing the melody and play the guitar part, he's come up with this very radical and singular drum voice for the song, doing that kind of Peggy Sue-type role with a little hi-hat accents in it and switching gears throughout and taking the... Yeah, I'm going to take the snares off. It needs the snares off. Just he is he had such an intuition for Oh, here's what your song needs and i'm looking at the album cover now and uh monday yeah he's doing it there and yeah 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 i had a room yeah just more prominent examples of this of him really deciding telling you Well, this is what it means now, and this is how it's going to go. And you were never, you know, you were never in conflict with it. You know, Radio 1990, I mean, that was one that we probably recorded it a few months after I'd written it, and he'd Mm -hmm. already found this really kind of molasses kind of pocket to put it in. And even within that, and kind of really using, utilizing a certain restraint throughout. And even within that, he'd find a way to sort of okay. Well, I perceive that we're going to be in the fade now, so I'm really going to orchestrate that, which he did. And, mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to go into a sort of halftime thing here. So, I mean, he just, in terms of what he had been asked to do, which was, you know, join join with me and play music with me, Mm -hmm. and what that meant to him, which was, well, I I mean, I would say that normally you get a drummer and they play your songs and there's not all of that extra metadata that Joe was bringing. Mm -hmm. You know, that was just very atypical. And I hope that everyone he played with, outside of our band. I hope they appreciated it. I hope they utilized it. I hope it was something they wanted because to me, it was just such a gift. And I thought there may have been a number of things that made us however special, I believe, we were Mm -hmm. and are, but that was sort of primary among those things. Mm -hmm. And everything, you know, like his introductions were musical. It wasn't just like, you know, clicking the stick four times. You know, something like Kevin Jr. with just that like... Goom, goom. Everything had this sort of voice to it, and it led to me. When I started making my own demos at home. There was a lot of like subconscious, what would Joe do? And sort of creating my own hooks on that basis of like, well, I'm not thinking of this consciously, but obviously. Would you
1: like reverse engineer something to say, okay, I know that if I give the bones of the song to him, he'll make it something beyond my demo.
0: Well, I knew that he would do that, but also I think that I started subconsciously adding my own elements that were just what I had gotten used to hearing, like, well, okay, obviously you don't just, you know, one, two, three, four, but like you come into it with some kind of a statement and without thinking about it, I was already a student of his in that respect. And this extended well beyond the drums in terms of what he brought to the tracks. And you always just did it. You always just said, yes, he'd come up with these things. Like, how about this? And rather than, oh, no, you know, I'm the I'm the boss here. You know, it was always just like, well, fuck it, he knows. You know, like, he hasn't been wrong yeah. yet. So the fate of Radio 1990 is one that I always think of where you have this idea like okay so it's going to be fading out and we're going to introduce some new element right as it's fading out so that the person who hears it thinks that there's something around the corner And that was joe i mean that was joe's idea of putting you know right like the, not just my drum part but like this big picture of you know okay well let's sing a little thing here Intro- like introduce a backing vocal in the last two seconds of the song mm-hmm. and that was that was just a really typical joe idea i'm now kind of wishing i know yeah he came up with and there were instrumental ideas that he would come up with I think that he must have had the idea of putting vibes on this town. Thought of in a million years, but again, you know, there he was. And then, you know, one more raindrop. Yeah. You know, was, he was like, can you play like a wrong note at the end of the solo? Like, so, like something Terry Adams would do. Um,. <laughs> <laughs> And that sort of thing, yeah. There's a, there's a like a backwards guitar swell and the static. That was his idea. So yeah, his sense of arrangement was just so, so, so far beyond his given instrument. So a lot of things, certain musical voices and tracks, he would just pitch it and you wouldn't even think, I mean, whatever. I may have thought that that was my job. And at some point I may have thought, well, I'm producing the band or whatever, but it's like, no, everyone's pitching in and Joe specifically always above and beyond. Oh, the song, I had a room. I remember how it has in its sort of B section the second half of the song I guess that sort of choral thing that we're doing, that repeating vocal thing and this idea is like okay so the last time around let's do it off mic mm-hmm. like we're going to be on mic the whole time obviously we're in a rock band but last time around let's get off mic so that it's mm-hmm. not going through the PA and then we simulated that in the recording I- Ah uh... So, yeah, I guess I I have to stop at some point because I could just keep going with <laughs> the amount of very selfless production that he provided mm-hmm. and whether it was playing a thing that would make you play a certain way or just suggesting a thing, a texture or a shift like overdub this here. It's 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 bizarre how unerringly he was right because he would say it mm-hmm. in such a way that didn't necessarily s- it never sounded bullish. Yeah. So he wasn't even presenting the idea with you know some ridiculous amount of confidence, but very quickly his track record became the thing that would push you along. He's like, oh, well, you know what? Oh, sure. He, you know, <laughs> experience tells me that what he's just pitched, I will interpret it. And it'll mean something. I'd like to
2: find something that's in the plant side. I'd like to do something good every night. I'd like to keep saying that my head's been screened all right. I'd like to take pictures of them.
1: It's a Hustrop song called Indian Summer. On September 26th of 2021, John San Juan and Jim Shapiro got together with an old colleague of theirs, Bill Swartz, who they had both been in the band Ness with, the three of them with three other wonderful bands, the Flat Five, Phil Angotti, and the Waco Brothers, all bands that had a connection to Joe Camarillo. They all got together and did a beautiful tribute concert to him at the hideout. Rare is a tribute show like that, so emotional that it feels like my heart was singing, it was ready to burst. There were certain moments when you guys were playing that just made my heart explode with happiness and emotion just because the way you chose to present the material and the choices you made, it was, as a fan, I wouldn't have known how a path forward because Joe's musical voice was so singular, it would have been difficult to see how you could have realistically moved forward in a coherent way that not only paid tribute to him but was magical in and of itself. But that show, both the Hush Drop set and everybody else who played, just such a magical, magical evening. And I had to compliment all of you for really going above and beyond. What were your impressions of that concert? How did it feel for you and Jim?
0: Oh, it was overwhelming. You know, it was our first time going out together and presenting that music without Joe, Just something that we'd never believed we would ever have to do or ever choose to do, I guess. So that was a new thing. And and that's never as simple as like, oh, we'll just plug in another drummer and, you know, off we go and, you know, instant hush drops. Like we really had to sort of, fumble quite a bit and experiment quite a bit to find a way to do that and you know Bill Swartz who played old friend of ours old colleague of ours you know he could not have been more diligent and Mm -hmm. but it also meant you know I mean if we'd been doing a gig with Joe like we might have rehearsed once twice maximum three times for it over a longer period but because we weren't, you know, we had to get together every day for a week and, like, no, like, this has the weight of not just being another Hush Drop show where, like, we might show up and shit the bed and it won't really matter horribly, but we're honoring Joe, so yeah, it has this whole new set of stakes to it that, you know, are, you know, non-native, you know that we have to adjust to so even rehearsing as much as we did and making some decisions on material like okay well this translates pretty well to this version of the band and maybe this doesn't and deciding you know well Jim and I initially like oh actually yeah, see so Bill you learned that from the record but you know for so the past 20 years of us playing it like actually now <laughs> Joe does this and that and <laughs> you know I mean that's just an unusual situation to be in I was overwhelmed. I was thankful that there was video taken of our performance, which, when I then watched it, I was like, oh, that's a that's a good band. That's a good gig. Like, if you saw that, you were lucky. But at the time, I think I just felt overwhelmed by the task. And so anything like... I mean, the fact that we maybe had come in and tried to present something slicker than... What we actually did in our real life as a band, you know, like, I mean, Hush Drops was a pretty informal thing. And I think because we were coming in sort of out of practice and out of the rhythm of doing it, you know, there was all of this. We'll join all these songs together and we'll do this and that and things that weren't maybe we may have underemphasized our best parts, which was just more sort of informality. So I think we learned that during the gig. Like, it took me breaking a string or forgetting that a certain song was next. Like, those sort of mishaps were what actually threw us back into kind of, oh, okay, now we're kind of on our home turf a little, mm-hmm. and you know, aren't, you know, it's not like being in a play where you're making all of these cues and things like that. You know it was a learning experience you know it's a weighty thing like I'm putting together this show to honor our friend and and I was the engine behind it I was the sort of the sort of contact for everybody and then when it was discovered like before the Delta variant started ramping up right when everybody had just gotten vexed it was like mm-hmm. great you know there was this sort of sense that we were all going to start having orgies again or something. Um, so like a couple month window of just this real sense of limitless optimism, like, okay, well look, we'll do it at Madison square garden we'll have 50 bands and, so our initial plan for it, like, really did involve everybody who wanted to play, which was a lot of people that he had worked with. Obviously, yeah. he's worked with a lot of people and made a lot of records and done a lot of tours. So it was going to be this all-day affair where we were alternating indoor and outdoor stages. And then at some point, it was just like, okay, well, this isn't safe. We can't do that right now. Yeah. Um, we really need to scale it down. And you know, thankfully, people were really cool about. Yeah, look, I think we're just going to, we're going to make it four acts and we'll do something again soon and get to some of the others. And, you know, people who were by necessity cut from it were really gracious about it. And yeah, I felt like a wedding planner that day. And I was also in, I, you know, just started having my first real, like, physical middle aged pains about a week and a half beforehand. And... Oh and I had all of these gigs with Josh Caterer. I think we did a couple gigs with Psychedelic Furs. And so I was kind of on this treadmill of like, oh, my God, like my, my back isn't working right. And, you know, I've got obligations to stand on stage and try to look like I'm not, you know, in agony. And then going into the rehearsals with that similar to So by the time of the gig, you know, I'm thrilled that we did it, and I I think it was satisfying. I mean, you're describing your experience of the gig, and so I think it did what it needed to do in terms of giving people a chance to come together and celebrate Joe and honor him and see some music and play some music, but for me, it was like one of those things like you pulled it off and you made it happen, But the actual experience on the day was, uh, it was difficult to be in the moment, honestly. Mm -hmm. And to feel relaxed. Just being that, you know, physically stiff on stage, you know, you wouldn't want that for that particular occasion.
1: No, no, it's less than ideal. Also off the brand new album, The Static, that's a song called Psychic Space, done live at The Hideout as part of the Joe Show tribute concert.
0: I liked playing with Jim. I got to say that. I I liked playing with Bill also, too. Bill's fantastic and was very selfless, the uh, work that he put into it. But, you know, I think for Jim and I, that was an important occasion because we'd been really talking around... Or just not talking about it all. Like, well, what now? You know, I know we like because I, you know, we got the record deal for the album and this kind of unspoken thing. Like, all right, so right, we'll have a promotional film and we'll do all these interviews and you know, as a publicist and all of these things. But the issue of whether or not Jim and I. Do we want to play without Joe? Or are we gonna play without Joe? You know, it took—I think—that experience, it took that experience to bring it to the forefront. Mm-hmm. Where he said, "You know, actually, yeah, we should play together. We should play this music." So that—that that was a—you know—that was a gain. You know, on a personal level. <laughs>
1: Is Bill still living in New York? Yeah. Would he continue on in a capacity as a house traps and just continue to be located in New York?
0: Well, I guess I can give you a scoop here, which is that no, that would not be practical because there's going to mm-hmm. be times where we're going to have to do things on short notice. You know, right. like, I mean, if you get a support slot, it's usually like, well, the good news is you're playing at the Vic. The bad news is it's tonight. You know, that sort of thing happens. <laughs> yeah. That sort of thing happens a lot. Or, right, right, right. Know, just- you know, In terms of the future, I don't think it's going to be the sort of thing where we're playing every day, but mm-hmm. we do have a record out and it deserves to be promoted and we need to get out and play these songs for people. So I think by far the most likely scenario here is that we will periodically go out and play with um, our friend John Perrin on drums. Yep. You know, John and I play together in Josh Caterer's band. Yes, we have this musical relationship. And he's on, you know, he's on the album, actually. He's on the Hush album. Because at the end of it, you know, well, when Joe died, when at whatever point, a month or so later, where I sort of started trying to pick up the pieces and think about finishing the record, there were a couple songs that I thought, well, you know... We were rehearsing these songs with Joe, we had plans to record them. I think they're special songs, they're load bearing songs in some way. Right. Um, the only drummer that I can name that I can think of that could give them what they need, that sort of a comparable looseness Mm -hmm. um, to what Joe would have given them is John Perrin. You know, if the drummer for NRBQ isn't good enough for this record, then who is, you know? I sent him, I just literally took my demos of him with the drums muted and, you know, sent the files over to him. And I remember it was a day my wife and I were going down to Quincy to get Mm -hmm. the Johnson & Johnson vaccination because at the time I had serious vax envy. And in Chicago, it was really a, it was a seller's market, you know? Um, Yeah, yeah you really had to wait your turn. And it's like, you know, of course you go down into Trump country and you know they can't give the fucking things away. Um, so, <laughs> you know, <laughs> let's go down there. So that day he's sending me on my phone, you know, so when Jennifer's driving, I'm, I'm checking these out, like, okay, so I took a stab at, you know, this song and that song and, you know, I'll do them better, but just, just listen and do you like what I'm playing? And I ended up using the first takes on both songs. Because, which what songs they? were these? Uh, one of the guys and the moment. Right, so this is, I think, testimony to a lot of. It. So, I don't think people heard those songs and were like, "Well, that's not Joe," you know. Like, there's they're complementary to what Joe is doing on the rest of the album. I think, right? But it was literally like, yeah, yeah, I think they're great, you know. And he's like, okay, well, I'll, I'll send you some more takes and I'll, I'll kind of, you know, tighten them up a little bit and get a better idea of what I'm doing. And in both cases, I thought the looseness of the first take and the sort of like him not quite having a plan together yet like well no that's the sound I like for this so whatever his he's played drops music at this point you know and he and I really enjoy playing together so I think when and if we have occasion well when when we have occasion to play mm-hmm. it will be me and Jim and John Perrin and he's a you know big admirer of Joe's
1: oh sure And he's
0: local Illinois, right? Yeah, yeah. He picks up the phone when I call, you know. (laughs) He's got a lot going for him. It's always a plus, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you know, um, and he and I have, you know, that's funny, he and I have already been through, I mean, we've made two records together with Josh and, you know, done all of this playing out of town and things like that. So there's just, there's a level of familiarity, of of family there, I guess, really, that we have. You know, when you can't... uh, I mean, you can't put an ad out for that sort of thing no
1: no 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 it's it's well it's like we mentioned last time the the personal relationship that you had with definitely Joe but and then eventually with Jim that kind of friendship and camaraderie which is obvious when when you see that you guys together it can't be faked it can't be manufactured and when you when musicians do have that it's a blessing personally because obviously the gears kind of mesh together. More easily, but it's also, I'm sure, an asset musically when you know that, well, this person's not going to be at cross purposes or do something out of spite for me, or at least that's minimized
0: because you guys do have the friendship. Right. And, you know, their instincts are, you know, their sympathetic instincts, you know, both personally and musically. Yeah, I've been making music for over 30 years now. And, you know, the thing that I keep going, deeper and deeper into is like i want it all to be like slippers and pajamas and your favorite old jeans and you think you'll even see that with the trajectory of the hush drops recording career that you know Mm -hmm. at the very beginning when we didn't know any better like there might have been a certain formalism to things. And by the time you get to the second album, and certainly to this most recent album, like mm. it's all like things are just like falling apart and slowing down. And it's got this just pathological informality to it that right. uh, apparently I've decided is, you know, this is our best side and it's my best side. And it's the. It's the foot that I want to put forward. (laughs) There's a a quote
1: that I think is relevant to what you're saying here. There's an, an actor, Taraji P. Henson. I guess she's 50 now. So she says, at 50, all the fucks I had to give are behind me now. And when you think about that, it's kind of a harsh way of saying, let the chips fall where they may. This feels right to me. I really need to put this out in the world as our vision for it is, and if loose is part of the mix, that might be what the art needs.
0: Yes, absolutely. Right. You wouldn't go into it designing it that way. It's empir—it's like an empirical lesson. I'm always talking to my kids about this. That, Like, yeah, I guess you have to, like, lose your ventricard card before you realize, like, don't lose your venture card you know what you know what i mean you've got children you know what i mean um, oh absolutely yeah. and as an adult i don't know that life is any different from that that like it turns out all you had to do was play for 30 years to find out that your best self is letting the chips fall where they may can't tell anyone the future might be done. Uh,
1: Now how and when did Pravda get involved? And then related to that, is Ken Goodman, the president of Pravda Records, on board with the fact that by necessity, by design and circumstance, this is going to be a non-standard promotional
0: cycle behind the album because of Joe's passing? Well... This is interesting. You know, I have had a whole lifetime to get to meet and know Ken, and it just never happened. I ran mm-hmm. into him once at Beetlefest in 2019, mm-hmm. of all places, yeah. but I, I met him and I knew that Joe had worked with him. So I was like, oh, hey, man, you know, whenever I play with Joe and had mutual friends like Dog Julin. Who was sort of prominent in both of our lives? I with I think what happened. My first contact with Ken was that the Ready Freddys, the Queen Tribute Band, had gotten a gig, a gig offer, and it was a festival. And I'm looking it up, whatever. Like I'm. You know, I we think we all like to get paid, and uh, so I'm looking <laughs> up like who's played there in previous years. Uh-huh. And you're like, oh, they had Expo '76 last year. Ken's band, uh, Ken's sort of festival band, uh, as it were. Oh, Ken's and, in like, that one. Okay, because I know
1: um, so, the drummer I know from there. Oh, who's that? John? John Carpenter. Yeah, John yeah. Carpenter from uh, plays with Steve in in, yes. uh, in Girl. X-Men. Yeah,
0: that's that's how I know him. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I wrote to dog and i'm like yeah you guys did that festival last year he's like do you, what did you what can we get out of them and he's like yeah you know honestly kin is the guy here's kin's email address write to him and ask him and mm-hmm. sure enough i write to him and he's just very matter of fact short answer like they're good for about 1500 and <laughs> <laughs> you know no embellishment so- no you know Oh, yeah. No, God. I mean, he is the the most. That's the person you want representing you, I have to say. Like, that's who you want collecting the suitcase at the end of the night. Um, (laughs) But, uh. Chuck Berry style. (laughs) Oh, yeah, exactly. So, uh. Oh, God. Yeah. Scott Legan tells a story about seeing Chuck at Jazz Fest in New Orleans in the 90s and Chuck having some, like, gigantic wallet in his back pocket that was, like, the most visible. It was just it was the white elephant in the middle of the room, like, and it was an his way of flexing, of, like, right? Yeah, half a foot of wallet in the in his back pocket while oh, he's man. playing guitar and singing front fronting a band. But um, so I started playing with this thing last summer at the end of maybe at the end of August that we made the phone calls or early September, but where me and Josh Caterer and John Perrin started playing together, and like Josh had this idea, like. Well, let's come up with our own arrangements for all of these standards, and we'll play. We'll live stream a show from the Empty Hideout Inn, and mm-hmm. blah blah blah, and and that can be our record. And I'm mm-hmm. like, that's pretty cool. And for some reason, I had the idea like we didn't have a deal for it. I'm just like, you know what? I'm gonna reach out to Ken and just mm-hmm. send him one of the songs and. I reached out to him, and he's like, "Oh, this is you know, I love, I love the smoking Pope's. I love Josh, and this is good stuff." I got them in touch, and they made a deal for the record. And so, at that point, you know, I'm I'm a, I'm a Pravda artist which like, and those guys all just seemed like, yeah, maybe they're only five years older than me. But when I came to Chicago, when I was 18 or 19 or 20, that like, they may as well have been in their 70s, you know? Like, that was just a different, to me, it seemed like a completely different generation that had all this experience. So yeah, we do the deal and the, the Josh record and, you know, that I mean, having this great time with all of it. And I knew that once Joe was gone and I started finishing the record, I'm like, well, you know what? Can't imagine Ken's just gonna let me keep pitching him records for the rest of my life but uh I have less than nothing to lose here and so I started sending him songs and I think you know I think partially probably because of his affection for Joe but also maybe just the, the inherent quality of what we were sending you know that uh he's like yeah let's do this let's let's make this a wow. thing
2: I satisfied the earth will show. Just like it did today and yesterday The house next door seems closer Than I know it used to be
0: And you know, it's bittersweet because you know it's the first time in our life as a band that we've been on a label and had a publicist and mm-hmm. all of these avenues that, to my mind, I, mean, I always felt that our music was worthy of these things. But it is unfortunate that Joe Camarillo is not here to have this experience with us, right? Because you know he's as deserving of it as anyone. You know, yeah. so that's that's a little bittersweet. And honestly, you know, it's a little bittersweet that, by definition, the sort of the hook of the story of promoting this album is that you know you can't talk about it without you know it's not like you would go do an hour interview with Mike Watt and then at the end of it like oh by the way uh, yeah and the drummer died you know like <laughs> it's it's a pretty prominent part of the story <laughs> and you're celebrating this person but you know, it also becomes a sort of a media hook, Mm -hmm. a promotional hook that this is a celebration of this person. And I'm sorry that you didn't get to know him because he was great. And he was amazing. Boy, listen to him, go listen to him play. Right. right? You know, but you know, that's also a thing. I think, you know, like you're going to know what it means when Brian Wilson dies or when Neil Young dies or whatever, like you won't have to explain it to anybody like, Oh, you know, like, and he did this, this thing called pet sounds. It's like, you check it out, you know, like, people know and this is a unique scenario where one of my me and my main creative partner and one of the most special musicians i've ever known like well you know you no know, the whole world doesn't know who he is or who he was and part of my job now is check out my dude you know
1: New Hush Drop's album, The Static, that song is called Jennifer's Grandpa. And I think the album, all the way from the song choices, the, the choices to leave that little extra Joe in between songs, and that glorious gatefold with all of those beautiful tributes to Joe, the whole album just really does function not only as this is Joe, he was great, but also this is
0: our band, and Joe was such a huge part of that. Oh, right, yeah, it's it's both things, yeah. Yeah, and even if the band went on for another 100 years, it wouldn't be that band, you know? So it is, this is us as we were, and, you know, and check it out. You know, there will come a time, I think, where... I mean, it's it's a weird thing to talk about, like, it's a thing, like, you know, years down the road, like, the album will still exist, Mm -hmm. but, you know, it's like when people are gone Mm -hmm. there comes a point where you you gradually uh, get accustomed to that reality and to that absence and to this whole like life that you are continuing to have and Mm -hmm. where I mean I'm very happy right now to I'm always happy to be talking about Joe there will probably come a point in time where that is a less prominent part of the story I think.
2: I took my troubles to Peter Told my troubles to Paul That didn't help me at all And that's the sweetest plum of all Yeah, that's the sweetest plum And that's the sweetest plum Something I overcome Well, that's the sweetest plum Sweetest love. Well, that's the sweetest love. Something to overcome.
1: So I got to ask the big elephant in the room question. Where do things stand with the Hush Drops as a group going forward? Have you and Jim talked about it and does the group exist as Hush Drops and can it
0: realistically exist as Hush Drops? Oh, those are good questions. I'm happy to answer them. You know, we really took our time with that. I think we, it was just because it, it was such an unknowable thing initially and there was so much shock and, you know, grief and loss and it wasn't relevant, you know, mm. at the time. And then, you know, so we did the tribute show that you mentioned earlier, and you know, we found like, oh, well, you know, we, we like playing together, we like hanging out, and so yeah. Jim and I went out to, we went out to lunch several weeks ago. Yeah, you know, I just mentioned. I'm like, well, i I'd, I'd love to keep playing together, and he's like, oh, I just assumed we would. Like, I same here you know um, yeah you know like it's yeah it's a different thing now and it will be a different thing in all sorts of ways in any number of ways but our wish to continue our musical relationship is uh yeah that's uh you know it is explicit and it's intact and you know and I don't I don't necessarily believe that Joe would have ever wished for us to stop doing what we do right I mean he was seemingly as big a fan of ours as we were of his you know and you know yeah it's the idea of it seems very performative to call it something other than Hush Drops at this point like Mm -hmm. that is what it has always been and I mean that's the repertoire we'll be playing like it seems like a silly thing like, okay, well, let's change one letter in the name in acknowledgement of the fact that, you know, Joe Camarillo through no choice of anybody's is not here. So, yeah, you know, I don't know. It may not have the same urgency that it has at certain points in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, But some of that is also like, you know, we've got families and just life is different in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm... I'm looking at calendars right now for whatever dates that are sort of sensible and adjacent to when the vinyl gets here and things like that. I've got secrets. I hope you have some too. Keep
2: your secrets and let them all come through. It's no secret. I owe it all to you. It's no secret. It's no secret.
1: What are the plans to either tour behind it or promote it? Obviously, you're appearing on a podcast, which is wonderful. Thank you. But- it's a
0: lot of a lot of that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I've got it. Like, it's all like there's a calendar in our kitchen, and it's all this like daddy interview, daddy interview, like <laughs> daddy phone. <laughs> Everybody, be quiet. You know. Um, and uh, so there's a lot of that, and you know, just that sort of publicity cycle and reviews and what have you. But you know, I mean, that will that will be finite it's not like we're gonna spend five years plugging the album right at that intensity i think obviously yeah you get out there and you know hawk it in that form but also you get out and play some music you know so concerts some of these... are part of that plan concerts are absolutely a part of that plan and it's one of those things jim has this gigantic amp this big tube fender bass amp and the head takes two people to move it and but it sounds. It's just. It's the sound of the band. It's part of our mm-hmm. sound. It's. It's his sound. It's great. It's what we do. And he was joking about because when we first got back together, like about like not bringing it to gigs, and we played this gig at Martyrs, and we used like the house equipment, and it didn't sound as good, and just like mm-hmm. it wasn't as good of a gig. And he's like, you know what? I'm. Well, however old Jim is, I'm that age, and mm-hmm. I've got. I've got a finite number of amp moving years left in me. I'm gonna move the amp while I have those years in me. (laughs) And and so much like your amp moving years, um I think our playing hush drops music years, it's the same thing. Like, well, we can still play, we can still sing, we can still carry some instruments, like (laughs) we'll do it until we can't, you know.
1: Wow. So there you have it folks, here's my scoop. The hushdrops lives on. And I'm thrilled as a fan to hear that what are the plans for some of the still unreleased songs that were recorded during the, the sessions for the static what's the state know. of completion on, on
0: those yeah we've got them you know we've got right
1: you know because i like we think we have another off the top of my head at least two or three that i know of oh that,
0: there's more yeah oh wow um, yeah, we did, for some reason, you know, to our credit, I guess, when we reunited, we recorded in bulk. You know, we only did like two ses- two tracking sessions, but it yielded a pretty absurd amount of songs. So, yeah, there's a couple that... You know, there's some of them are finished and mixed and then some of them some of them Joe and I recorded together and like, well, I want to get Jim on those cuz I think right. if you have an opportunity to get the three of us playing together on a track, that to me that seems kind of valuable. So, I don't know what that's going to be if those going to periodically we'll put out singles or it's not like there's this album like we have a concept album in the closet that we're going to unleash on the world someday. So, yeah, no hard and fast plans, but, you know, we're not going to keep them locked up forever either, you know.
1: Speaking of Hush Drops material recorded with Joe Camarillo, but not currently available. Here's a song from the now out of print EP, The Lummox. It's a song called Jetstream.
3: Make your way back through
2: the your way back
1: and I'm looking forward to you bringing this album to
0: the world. Well, thanks for everything. Thanks for coming up with all these questions and asking them and putting so much thought into it. it yeah, it's been a joy to talk. And Absolutely. I look forward to hearing this. Uh, <laughs> I look forward to hearing this uh, when it hits books on tape.
1: There you have it, folks. John San Juan telling us all what the Hush Drops have been up to during this crazy pandemic times. Make sure you tune in for part two when John San Juan goes deep into the tracks that make up the band's new album, The Static, and we get into what went into it and a little more about Joe Camarello. Stay tuned, folks. Thanks for listening. We will be back. This is The Famous Cat Chronicle, season two, episode one. Pay attention for more episodes coming soon. Until then... I'm Thomas Durkin. Thanks a lot. One, two, three, four. mm <sighs>